0: Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle, I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, I am going to be presenting part three in a series of reviews that I've been doing of articles that appeared in the Ordained Servant, which is a publication periodical aimed at officers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so these three articles uh, that were posted in 2023 last year have to do with textual criticism. It all started back in September, uh, I think August, September of 2023, when there was an initial article uh, that the editor had solicited, actually from a PCA minister and academic named T. David Gordon, and he did an article about textual criticism. And supposedly, according to the editor, he did this because there had been some discussion in OPC circles about uh, the text of the Bible. And when I did the review of that article, I suggested that I see that as a positive sign. That discussion of what is the proper text of scripture is being had on a popular level, uh, a wider level these days. It's appearing on the radar screen. And then in the December of 2023 uh, issue of the ordained servant, there was a ruling elder who had sent in an article wanting to sort of counter, I think, some of the ideas that were put forward by T. David Gordon. He wanted to argue for the so-called um, majority text. And so this was the, the article that was written by Bruce Stahl. and did a review of that one. And uh, also in that December 2023 ordained servant, there wasn't just the article that was, here's the case for the majority text, but the editor saw fit to ask T. David Gordon to do yet a second article. uh, And this one was uh, titled, The Case for the Eclectic Greek New Testament Text. And so what I want to do is review, if I can briefly, that third article in this series of articles on textual criticism, the second uh, by T. David Gordon. And so let me go ahead and see if I can pull up uh, this onto the screen so that you can uh, see it. Oh, way at the bottom of the page there. This was the December 2023 uh, ordained uh, servant. um, And uh, there was kind of this point counterpoint Uh, the case for the majority Greek New Testament text from Bruce A. Stahl, who is a ruling elder in Missouri. And then uh, there was accompanying it a a second article by T. David Gordon, the case for the eclectic Greek New Testament text. And I talked about this, I think, the last time, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But um, it, it is interesting, with all due respect to the editor, that you know his own bias and his own um, preferences, I think are on display here because he doesn't want to represent the majority text position of Bruce Stahl without a counterweight of having another article about the modern critical text. It's interesting that when T. David Gordon did his original article back in the September, August, September issue, He didn't think that he needed to have someone write an article about the majority text. And as I pointed out last time, there's there's a major gap in this series, because as even T. David Gordon himself pointed out in the very first article, there are actually three positions. There's the Texas Receptus position, the classic traditional Protestant text, Position. There's the majority text position and there's the modern critical text position. And so far, there have been two articles by the same author on the modern critical text, one on the majority text, and zero uh, uh, representing a defense of the received text. And I know that there are some men in the OPC, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, who would defend. Uh, And if they, if he went outside of the OPC to have someone present for the modern critical text, uh, he certainly could have gone outside um, and stayed within Presbyterian circles. He could have had a brother from the uh, Free Church of Scotland continuing uh, write an article on why the Texas Receptus, uh, or he could have had a minister within their own uh, boundaries. He could have had a Reformed Baptist write one, uh, such an article. Um, anyways, let's um, let's go ahead and turn, if we can, to T. David Gordon's um, article that we want to uh, do our review of. And let me just increase the size of the print so that I can actually see uh, what is here. And I'm just going to do what I did before. I'm going to read through it, and I'm going to pause and uh, make some observations. I did skim read it actually about 30 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I just skim read through it. I didn't read it closely. I did pick up a stack of books and I've got a stack of books sitting beside me, just went down to my library, picked up some uh, books that I might pull from. I've got my own, I've got my personal copy of the Bible beside me and um, don't really have any notes. This is another one of these kind of extempore um, responses. And so uh, let's see if we can work through this article. He begins the opening paragraph. Aristotle wisely cautioned us to avoid extremes in our pursuit of the golden mean, the virtue that often resided between two extremes. I attempted to do so with textual criticism by this paradoxical mini creed. Text criticism is not unimportant. Text criticism is not all important. And so he starts off with a, a reference to um uh, antiquity to Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean ethics, uh, the so-called golden mean you should avoid extremes. And he says with text criticism, we don't want to say it's not important. We don't want to say it's all important. Um, of course, I, I tend towards the, it's pretty doggone important. Uh, if we can't establish what the text of scripture is, then how do we know what the Bible says. And so my question would be at what point does it cross the line and you say it begins to be important. Um, It seems to me like it starts off with the needle already, you know, pretty far on the, this is a very important point. And of course we're not, um, we're not pre-Christian Greeks. Uh, We're Christians and we believe in the importance of, Uh, scriptural epistemology, sola scriptura. So if scripture is our foundation, um, we have to be pretty clear about what scripture is. Anyways, he continues, after Robert Louis Dabney completed an extremely detailed and erudite discussion of the doctrinal various readings in the New Testament, and he referred to this in his opening article, he had several quotations from R.L. Dabney um, and this famous essay of his, from 1871, he says he observed that not one significant doctor would be affected by any text-critical conclusion. Now, he says, I agree with Dabney both in my willingness to do text criticism whenever the interpretation of given text demands it and in agreeing that comparatively little is at stake. Let me pause here. And um, I, I talked a little bit about Dabney last time and um, Dabney uh, has proven to be a fairly controversial figure in the modern world. I'm very thankful that uh, T. David Gordon is not canceling um, R.L. Dabney because of his uh, participation in uh, the war between the states um, and the fact that he had been on the staff of uh, Stonewall Jackson and was an ardent uh, patriot for the Southern cause, Um, but... uh, I would say that if you look at Dabney's writing in 1871 on the Doctrine of Various Readings of the New Testament, um, as I said last time, I wish that Dabney had taken a stronger stand in favor of the received text. Um, he, he was trying to come to terms with the advent of modern textual criticism, much like B.B. B. Warfield was, much like someone like Charles Spurgeon was. And so they were trying to take all of this in. They were trying to read it all. They were trying to uh, protect uh, Orthodox Christianity in light of these this new, the rise of this new discipline and these so-called new discoveries. But I think even in this article, I think uh, T. David Gordon uh, sort of uh, exaggerates Dabney's view and makes him sound, I think, more amenable, to the modern critical text than he actually was, if you sit down and read the article. And yes, I do think he sort of he sort of retreated into an apologetic that said uh that would be um the the foundation for the classic evangelical. No cardinal truths of doctrine are affected by any textual variant. And I I I really regret that he did that because I don't I think that's completely uh untrue. It's patently false. Um, there are many textual variants that have to do with key doctrines, um, and that has to do with key doctrines of bibliology, like preservation, like the canonical text, and so forth. But, again, I think, with all due respect, that, that Gordon oversells uh, Dabney's um, uh, ideas uh, about Uh, textual criticism not having doctrinal impact. And let me just give you one example of this. This is, uh, I've got here my copy of Sprinkle Publications, uh, Volume 1 of Dabney's Discussions, where it reprints the, the Doctrinal Various Readings article. And at one point in this article, he surveys Uh, a number of the really important uh, textual variants uh, that affect uh, theology, the doctrine of God. So he cites 1 John 5, 7. He cites 1 Timothy 3, 16. God was manifest in the flesh and several other passages like that that have to do with theology or Christology. And here's how he summed it up. This is Dabney, um, page 374. He said, if now... The reader will glance back upon this latter list of variations, First John 5, 7, 1 Timothy three sixteen, and others. He says, he will find that in every case, the doctrinal effect of the departure from the received text is to obscure or suppress some testimony for the divinity of the Savior. And that's the end of the quotation. So what he's saying is that the sum total of these changes and the, the list of variants that he gives in the book is that it undermines, it undermines the deity of Christ. And this is a persistent criticism of the modern critical text that um, it, 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 it takes on a more Unitarian feel to it, in part because there were scholars that were on these committees who created these modern critical texts, that, ha- that had a tendency uh, to see Unitarianism as a more primitive perspective of Christianity and to see the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity as later dogmatic developments. And, and and Dabney is well aware of that. So just a little point off point there that I think that uh, with all due respect that uh, T. David Gordon um, oversells, Uh, Dabney, uh, with respect to his um, flexibility on these textual variants, and he undersells the degree to which Dabney makes an argument in this famous article for for retaining the received text as a normative, functional standard among Protestant Christians. So read the article for yourself. Um, I've I've had it on my to-do list for a long time. I'd like to do a little article on R.L. Dabney and textual criticism that would talk about this article, and in particular, the book review that he did for the English uh, revised version of 1881. Um, It's it's a wonderful review and it has to be taken into consideration uh, in thinking about Dabney's use of textual criticism. At any rate, um, he continues here. I agree with Dabney both in my willingness to do text criticism and agreeing that comparatively little is at stake, and I don't think Dabney thought little was at, as at stake. The quotation I just gave you shows that. He thought that, that the affirmation of the deity of Christ were at stake with so many of these changes. Uh, the gospel, for instance, is not at stake text critically, nor is the word of Christ or the word of God at stake. Um, and I'm not sure why he put those in quotes. Maybe he's thinking about Uh, Textual variants, perhaps in Colossians 3.16, where there there might be a textual variant, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And some manuscripts may read, let the word of God dwell in you richly. But I think even the modern critical text says word of Christ. Um, He continues, the apostolic gospel uh, existed and was proclaimed orally before there were any apostolic writings, much less 27 of them. The same gospel exists today and is proclaimed orally today by missionaries in cultures that have no written language. This is kind of an interesting argument, I think, for a Protestant minister to be making. And so in it, it, and, and one sense, he's saying you don't really need the Bible because the gospel is orally preached. Um, but what I would say is, even the missionaries who go into a culture where the Bible hasn't been translated and they're orally preaching, what's the first thing they do? They they begin to translate the scriptures. And also, they have the scriptures, the missionaries who come, they have the scriptures. So we're not living in the age of canonical formation. There was an age uh, in the time of the the prophets and apostles where they were ministering when the bible uh, the the revelation of god's word in the scriptures the bible was not complete but we're not living that age any longer we have the bible and so we don't rely just on oral preaching we also rely on the word of god written and in fact there's not and there's not a competition between these two things because the word of god written is the foundation for the oral preaching. And the oral preaching has to be consistent with uh, the the standard of of what is written. We don't want to go beyond what is written. Let's see. He continues. Uh, At the time Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, so maybe he was thinking Colossians 3.16, the New Testament was still in the process of being formed. Indeed, Paul was still writing letters himself. The word that was available to them was the apostolic gospel, perhaps as summarized in 1 Corinthians 1 through eleven, and that includes uh, the famous uh, passage in uh, verses three through five, that where Paul says, I, "I hand on to you that which I have also received that Christ died for, our, for uh, uh, died for us according to the scriptures that he um, uh, was buried that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures." and they appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. So he's saying that while the New Testament was being written, there was a gospel being proclaimed. But again, we're not living right now in that uh, age of canon formation. We're living in the age where the scriptures have been complete. Um, He says, a brief argument, ad absurdum, may help to see the point. How would we obey Paul's command today in countries where the gospel has been preached, but the Bible has not yet been translated. The existence of the proclaimed gospel is not dependent upon individual believers owning or reading a Bible translated into their own language, assuming their culture has a written language. And again, even in, I I already made this point, even in a culture like that, the missionaries have the Bible. We have the Bible now. Um, We're not groping about in the dark. Uh, Even if, for people who live in a culture that don't have the Bible, the missionaries who come are, are, are telling them what is in the Bible and they have the Bible that serves as a foundation until they can translate it into the, the spoken and written language of the people in the culture to which they are going. Um, at the Kept Pure in All Ages conference, at the end of one of the sessions, I just sort of, um, it wasn't in my notes, but but uh, at the end of, I think it was my last message I just told an anecdotal story about uh, my neighbor, a man who was my neighbor in the first church that I served as pastor, uh, who was illiterate. And um, he came to our church and heard the preaching of the gospel and was converted. And I, in part, I told that uh, story in, impromptu at the end of that, that message because I'd had a, a conversation, a uh, fairly lengthy conversation with someone who was at the conference Asking this very thing: Can somebody be saved who hasn't uh, read the Bible? And and I told that that story in part, <laughs> kind of on the on the fly. That that uh, someone might even say the Holy Spirit was helping me uh, because I wanted to speak to that person in particular to say, yes, someone can come to the faith who can't read. But the point is, I can read, and I was preaching from the Bible and. The people in the church that I was pastoring at that time, uh, they had the Bible, and we could bear witness to this man even though he couldn't read. So, just because the gospel could penetrate the heart of this man who was illiterate doesn't uh, downplay or obscure in in any way the power of the inscripturated word. Um, Let's go on. Now, he's going to do quite a bit of some references to Stahl's article, And I'm not going to go back and forth, and we're just going to have to see if we can try to recall some of the things that Stahl wrote based on Gordon's critique of it. He he says, Mr. Stahl writes, quote, those who received the written New Testament as books or letters in the original language had confidence that that what they were hearing was in fact the word of God, end quote. Which was it? Did they hear the gospel slash word of God or did they read it? Prior to the printing press for 15 centuries, the Christian church expanded nearly globally without individuals owning Bibles at all. Let me pause here. I don't think it has to be an either or, and I don't remember the context, but I think he uh, he's probably referring to the place where um, Paul, in his address to the Thessalonians, talked about how they had received his ministry, his words not as the words of men, but as what they are in truth, the word of God. And it's not an either or. I think it could refer to both and. They both heard the apostolic preaching of Paul, and they read his letters, the ones that were inspired, and they received them as the word of God. But again, that was an age in which the canon was still being formed. But we don't live in that age anymore. We live in the age now where the canon has been complete, and yes, the, technolo- the technological transmission of the word of God has changed for the first 1500 years of Christianity. Everyone had to rely on hand copied manuscripts. Uh, then with the invention of the printing press, uh, people could rely on printed editions of the Bible. And we're going through a, a change right now. We're in the digital revolution. And it may be that in the future, there will be people reading their Bibles uh, digitally. I really hope that doesn't Come about because I think there is, uh, there's always going to be a place for the 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 word written in a palpable uh, uh, form in a codex or book form. But anyways, um, he continues. Uh, yeah, there were there were individual Christians who didn't own Bibles, but the church had a Bible. God had had sent His Word. It's not a matter of how many Bibles there were, but the Bible was complete and it was being preached and taught. He continues, indeed, most Christian churches did not have an entire Bible. They merely had copies of the lectionary readings for the year, but there, there, the Bible was complete, even if there were not multiple copies of it. Um, he says, it is anachronistic to assume that Paul wrote to people who own Bibles. That's not what Bruce Stahl was saying. Again, no one is that simplistic. Yes, we, we understand very well uh, that uh, that there was a difference in the first 1,500 years, and certainly it was a difference in the apostolic age, and the canon was was still being formed. Um, he continues, the only reason the Ethiopian in the chariot had access to a manuscript of Isaiah was because of his professional duties. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, Acts eight twenty seven emphasis added, and, um, well, that's an interpretation. I I don't see that he had this the copy of Isaiah because he was a, a court a functionary uh, for the 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 queen of the Ethiopians. He had a copy of the scriptures because he was a God fearer, and because he had been to Jerusalem because he wanted to go to the temple uh, as a Gentile proselyte. Um, so not every court figure would have had a copy of the scriptures, but one who was a God-fearer, and wanted to have access to the Word of God. And uh, that, that scripture, that Old Testament passage from Isaiah, was, a, was enough. It was sufficient uh, for Philip to, to, from those scriptures, to preach Jesus to him. Um, we continue, a hand-copied manuscript, whether on animal skin or papyrus, was indeed in the first century a treasure. And only one who had access to such treasure would have had access to a manuscript. But even people who didn't have a written Bible or even people who couldn't read had access to the scriptures because they were complete and they were being preached and taught by by the officers of the churches. They were being uh, kept in churches. We could go back and look at the writings of someone like Tertullian uh, who would write to Christians and say, hey, if you have a, a copy of one of Paul's letters and you're not sure if your copy is accurate, go to Rome and look at the letter to the Romans, go to Corinth and look at the Corinthian correspondence, go to Thessalonica and look at first and second Thessalonians. This assumed, I think he's overselling that people didn't have access to writing. Um, Early Christians uh, were, were people who liked to read and uh there were non-professional scribes ordinary christians would copy down parts of the word of god and this is one of the things that uh the people who work in modern textual criticism will tell you that the early earliest copies of the new testament were done by non-professional scribes because they wanted to have they wanted to have access to the word of god i think he's overplaying here the idea that the early christians didn't didn't have or, or want to have written scriptures. They did. Um, let's see. He says the claim that the quote the churches also carefully copied the written word end quote is a form of special pleading. Well, I don't think so. I mean, it could be a historical observation. The churches carefully copied the written word. Um, one of the arguments. This is beautifully made by John Owen is that the early Christians were influenced by Judaism. In fact, Christ himself, the apostles, many of the early followers, they were Jews. And in early Judaism, um, there was a, a huge emphasis on careful copying of the scriptures. Um, they counted each uh, each letter, and uh, they, they carefully knew the midpoint. Of books, the midpoints of the of the whole um, Torah, and they would count carefully. And if a if a copy was inaccurate, they would destroy it. Um, so so early Christians, we would think, took up those same sort of sensibilities that they should be careful with the word of God. So I don't think that's special pleading at all. I think it's a historical argument. You may disagree, you may argue against it. Somebody might say, well, look at these papyri, they're sloppy, there are lots of mistakes in them. Uh, We're not denying that either, but let's not deny the fact that there's evidence for Christians caring very much about the careful transmission of the Bible, the careful transmission of the scriptures. Uh, And my example, Tertullian, uh, telling Christians, go to a, go to the apostolic uh, cities and look at the originals or the master copies that are there to check your copy against them. That shows a care for me- meticulous transmission. A lot of that was disrupted because of persecution of Christianity. Uh, we continue. We may not assume such a historical matter. Some churches may have had scribes. Many, if not most, churches likely did not, especially those that were not in larger metropolitan areas. Note how expensive such manuscripts were in the ancient world. Quote, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. in quote, Acts 19.19. So he's talking about how books were expensive. And as an example, he talks about the uh in, in Ephesus, the 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 burning of these magical arts books. But doesn't this actually prove exactly the point against them? This shows that that the people in Ephesus had these magical arts books, but when they became Christians, they destroyed those. But what seems likely is that they wanted to replace these things that they had destroyed with copies of the Christian scriptures or or uh, other types of Christian writings that they cared about having uh, written materials to give them instruction. He continues, we do not know how many people were practicing black arts, but it may have been as few as the as seven sons of Sceva or possibly more, perhaps 50, but 50,000 pieces of silver is over a thousand times what Judas received for betraying Christ. Uh, considering that he took his own life in grief, even 40 pieces of silver must have been of fairly substantial value. If books were readily available in the first century, Paul would not likely have needed Timothy to bring his from Troas. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. This is also a strange (laughs) argument. He's saying because Paul didn't have books and told Timothy to bring him books, that this shows the scarcity of books. But couldn't I turn that around and say it actually shows that Paul— Had an interest in having books and having written materials with him. Um, People in the first century era uh, were interested in reading and writing, and particularly the Christians. There was a higher degree of literacy among Jews and then later among Christians because they were so interested in reading their scriptures and, and using them devotionally, and for the ministers and officers preaching from them. So I think this sort of uh, uh, argues exactly the opposite here of what uh, uh, Dr. Gordon is trying to say. Um, he's go back to the quotations from 2 Timothy 4:13, and the above all here, the adverb Melista, should probably be namely indicating which books would be brought, distinguishing parchments, tas membranas, uh from papyrus or papyri. Um he continues: it is only plausible, if it is only plausible, not at all necessary, to interpret Westminster's kept pure in all ages to mean kept equally pure in all places in all ages. Um Again, I don't, I'm not. This is a, an example of a straw man argument. I don't know anyone who holds to the confessional text position, the Reformation text position, who would say that they interpret kept pure in all ages to mean that the scriptures were kept equally pure in all places in all ages. It's not saying that everyone, everywhere, had access to the full, complete Bible. We recognize the technological challenges of the day but what we're saying is that the bible was complete god had inspired it he had completed it and he had preserved it and there there were uh, among the believers the scriptures and they recognized the scriptures when they the, the sheep heard the voice of their shepherd in them and the, the, so the church since the last inspired book was completed has never been without the scriptures Uh, The scriptures have been kept for them by God. Um, He continues, even Stephanus, a Renaissance scholar with access to libraries and scriptoria, did not have an entire Greek text to work with. Let me pause here, and with all due respect, and I noticed this when I did my skim through, uh, this is going to be kind of a mistake that's repeated several times. I don't think he meant to say Stephanos. Stephanos, um, uh, Robert Estion was the uh, Calvinistic uh, French uh, printer uh, who was a, a colleague and friend of Calvin. I think he meant um, Erasmus, and he mistakenly said said Stephanos rather than Erasmus. And I talk, worked with this last time. He is is drawing here on this Erasmian anecdote that Erasmus was missing uh, a page out of the book of Revelation. Um, and anyway, so I think if I think this was just an error here from uh, Dr. Gordon and uh, maybe I'll send the editor or Dr. Gordon an email and just, that might need to be corrected for this article. Um <laughs> Uh, His original was missing an entire page. It simply is not historically true that Greek and or Hebrew manuscripts were available everywhere at all times. Again, that's a straw man. Our view of kept pure in all ages does not say it uh, it was kept equally pure in all places at all times. But the Bible was complete when the last inspired book was written and it was never lost. It was preserved and kept by God. Um, by His special uh, care and providence, um, he says they probably intended only to affirm that, despite the wide global spread of the Church and despite occasional persecution, copies of original manuscripts survived almost miraculously. No, I would take the almost out. Um, that it was it was a it was an act of not ordinary providence but special providence uh, by which God kept His Word pure in all ages. And insofar as they are available in any given generation, it is they, copies of the Autographa, that are authoritative, not the Latin Vulgate. Yes, I agree with that. Authentical is merely an archaic form of authentic. And it was sometimes used to distinguish an original document from a copy thereof. The assembly knew, talking about the Westminster assembly now, that they did not have the authentical books in that sense. They did not have the autographs. Well, again, I would, I, I would disagree a bit here. They didn't have the autographs, but all you have to do is read John Owen, for example. He says, we don't have the autographs, but when we have the fateful apographa, when we have the faithful copies, we have the word of God. Read Richard Brash's uh, article in the Westminster uh, uh, Theological Journal, where he says that there was a practical univocity, as the Protestant Orthodox saw it between the autographa and the faithful apographa that were then being put into print in their day. And so when they read uh, those texts, they believed they were reading the preserved word of God. Um, He continues, the assembly knew that they did not have the authentical books. No, no, no. Authentical in their context undoubtedly meant that it was the original authentic sacred writings themselves, not a Latin translation thereof that was to be considered authentic in the sense that all controversies in religion were to be resolved by appeal unto them as opposed to the Vulgate. And so here he's he's making the argument that when the Westminster Divine said that the scriptures were authentical uh, only in the originals, they were only making a kind of polemical point against the Roman Catholics to say that the authentic text was in Hebrew and Greek and not in the Latin Vulgate. And although certainly they would have affirmed that, that would have been a matter of affirming the originals over against translations. But um, I I think that when they said that we have the the authentic text, they weren't just saying we have Hebrew and Greek. They were saying we have what the prophets wrote. We have what the apostles wrote. And it has been preserved by God. This wasn't just a polemical point, uh, merely a political point against the Vulgate uh, that is shaping uh, the sentiments. I think in Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter One and Paragraph um, Eight, uh, he says the assembly knew about the kinds of imperfections characteristic in ancient manuscripts. Of course, they did. We're not saying again. This is this is another. Place where sometimes our opinion and views are obscured because they act as though we don't believe that the Protestant Orthodox knew about textual variants. Of course they did. Of course they did. Just look at their writings. They they discussed textual variance. Duh, we know that. Um, so we're we're not so ignorant as to say they did not understand textual variance, but they believed that the word of God had been preserved and that they had a common text and that despite these occasional textual variants, they had the word of God written and they had the word of God that had been preserved and they believed that they could determine what the true text is. And uh, so anyways, um, he continues, they knew that, that one of them was missing an entire page Again, back to this Erasmus anecdote. Please give me primary sources and not secondary sources on this. But Erasmus was in 1516. The Westminster divines are uh, composing the Westminster Confession of Faith um, and the catechisms and so forth over 100 years later. Um, So I'm not really sure what his point is. What I would suggest is that you go and read the commentary by uh, Thomas Manton on the book of James. And Manton was one of three clerks for the Westminster assembly and read what he writes in the opening pages, the introduction to his commentary on James that was published after his death in 1693. Look at the banner of truth edition of it. I think it's page 10 and he talks about how, not only does he defend the canonicity of James, the book of James and the books of um, 2 John and First uh, and 2 Peter and Revelation, but he also defends the authenticity of the ending of Mark, the woman taken in adultery, um, the Christ uh, intercessory prayer upon the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, um, and the coma yoaneum. And he says, if we were to lose these passages it it would furnish the triumphs of hell. And so the men of the Westminster Assembly did not have a loosey-goosey view on the text of Scripture, Um, even though they acknowledged that there were minor textual variants that they thought could be overcome through a reasonable study and comparison of the Scriptures, um, he continues, their point was to settle religion by appeal unto copies. Their point was to settle uh, these controversies by appeal unto copies of the original languages, not copies of translations of the original languages. And with all due respect, I disagree with that. It's not merely a, a polemic against the Latin Vulgate, but it is an affirmation that the Bible had been immediately inspired in Hebrew and Greek and that the Hebrew and Greek text had been preserved, and it was reliable. What they had was the Word of God, and so it's not just that they were they, that they were making a polemic against the Latin Vulgate. Um, he says, uh, neither I, neither I nor I trust anyone else either knows who Mr. Stahl's many Reformed theologians are, or what difference it makes. I'm not sure what this is a reference to in Stahl's um, paper. We'll go on. Commitment to an eclectic text does not require commitment to any particular textual tradition. Westcott and Hort were infamous for their preference for Alexandrian readings, but successive generations have mostly become truly eclectic Preferring internal evidence to external evidence in most cases. And recall that Stephanus himself, the principal originator of the textus receptus, and again, I'm not sure if he means Stephanus or or he's mistaking um, Erasmus here. And if you think that Erasmus' 1516 published edition of of the Greek New Testament, which was the first uh, printed edition of the Greek New Testament, was the foundation of the tr then i just think he made a mistake here anyways um anyways he says Stephano's slash erasmus employed an eclectic text even using a latin text where his greek manuscript was defective again he seems to be talking about erasmus not Stephano's. but again that's an anecdote that i that i think is not well founded um anyone who compares available manuscripts and then selects the reading that is best explain about what we know about the process of copying embraces the eclectic text as Stephano's or Erasmus did. And again, I would say that that is uh, inaccurate. I, I, Again, I think the, the men of that era um, d- recognized variants and they did comparisons and they did some rational comparison of these variants. Um, but that is the not the same as what is done in modern textual criticism. Um, they were also taking uh, in, into uh, to into their attention it was one of their concerns the tradition of the church and the theology and what had been received. And that is not at all a concern of the secular modern text critic as uh, Tom Wasserman, a Swedish, A Baptist uh, textual critic uh, once put it in the comment section at the Evangelical Textual Criticism blog site. He wants to do textual criticism as if God did not exist. He wants to have have no supposed theological bias as if one could do that. Um, That's not the way that Erasmus or Stephanus or Beza were approaching the text of Scripture um, let's continue. Westcott and Hort are not representatives of the eclectic text tradition. And I, 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 they were the, they were I, some of the fathers of the eclectic text tradition, but he's making the point that they cared more about external evidence than internal evidence. That's a previous point he had made. And, um, you know, I, I recently heard Maurice Robinson talk about this because he feels like the, the, the Byzantine text position is a, a truer, Um, a more legitimate descendant of Westcott and Hort because it cares so much about external evidence. And so I would agree with him that in modern textual criticism, as it developed through the 20th century, that there was more of an emphasis on internal evidence and sort of that emphasis sort of went to seed in what is called thoroughgoing eclecticism. Um, And I guess we could say it's perhaps still, this is still true in the 21st century with the development of the coherence-based genealogical method as i pointed out in my previous review of T David Gordon he doesn't seem to be aware of the major changes that have happened only in the last 40 years in in 21st century or postmodern textual criticism but anyways he's talking about Westcott and Hort he says they had strong presumptive uh, a strong presumptive commitment to alexandrian manuscripts most today regard their viewpoint as naive and make text-critical decisions based on internal evidence, not external evidence. Much of Mr. Stahl's reasoning, therefore, may be a tilting at non-existent windmills. I don't think Mr. Stahl's uh, uh, essay is at all tilting at windmills. And, And this is another point get to be made. Although modern textual criticism of the 20th century might have said that there was more emphasis on internal evidence Many people have pointed out that the modern critical text as it exists today isn't really all that different than Westcott and Hort's uh, text of 1881. Um, there's not been that much change, uh, even with the discovery of the papyri in the 20th century, even with uh, more emphasis on internal evidence. It really hasn't changed the text that much. So I think uh, uh, Gordon is overselling here. Uh, He says, I also regard all Mr. Stahl's references to experts in the previous article as misleading, whether intentionally or not. The late Bruce Metzger himself, an expert, was often in the minority on the committee that produced the UBS text, and the other experts permitted him to write the commentary on their work. His commentary demonstrates that there was a range of opinion among those experts As is true in almost all cases where expertise is germane. The frequent references to such experts I regard not only as ad hominem, but also as a somewhat crass appeal to American populism. Interesting. Whether an expert or a bumpkin embraces a view is irrelevant to the question of the evidence and reasoning behind the view. Bumpkins are not always wrong and experts are not always right. They were frequently wrong about COVID. Good point. But the frequent reference To unnamed experts, Mars, the article with needless smoke through which the reader must cut. If an error is erroneous, the error, its error, if an error is erroneous, its error should be refuted without regard for its human origins. And I don't really remember this part of Stahl's article, but I think probably what he was saying was that we have the Academy and, uh, we, this, the, the academy, they they now claim to be the experts and they say, um, listen, you ordinary pastors, particularly you people in the pew, you really don't have any input on this. We have all the knowledge. Look at us. We have these PhDs from these credentialed universities and we are the experts. We can tinker with the text and you don't have enough knowledge to help us out. And honestly, that has been the attitude of many People in the modern academy, particularly these younger scholars, there's so much hubris. And uh, I've been through circumstances where I've had some say, you shouldn't even be talking about this. Um, my, my goodness, you, you're a pastor and you can't talk about the word of God. You can't talk about the scriptures. Even if, even if you have a degree, uh, a, a graduate degree in New Testament, you're not credentialed enough to talk about the Bible um, by virtue of being an officer of Christ's church. Um, and it does seem to me that, you know, in in at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Magisterium was saying, we'll make the decisions for you, and many times today, it feels like the academy is saying, you just sit back, and you'll accept the Bible we give you, whether you want it or not, whether you ask for it or not, whether you like it or not, you're going to accept what we give you, because you don't know enough uh, to critique us, and um, anyways, I think, that if that, that's where Stahl was going, he's got a valid point. Um, and even remember T. David Gordon, he started off the last article with, "I've have these degrees and I've taught for this many years." He's kind of claiming his authority to make these decisions, and it does irritate. I found a lot of these people. If you don't bend to their academic prowess, and you you just simply ask questions about the wisdom of what they're doing or have been doing. Um, and I'm all for us continuing to ask questions. Um, there, there, are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of modern text critical uh, Fauci's who are out there who are more than happy to tell us to wear our mask, get our shots, uh, receive our Bibles and don't ask any questions about it. Um, anyways, he says, I could wish that the matter were as simple as choosing between divine authority and human authority, Who does not prefer divine authority to human authority? Who would not prefer the divine expert to human experts? But we do not have direct access to God himself. That's interesting for a Protestant minister to say, don't we? Don't we have access to God himself through Christ and through the Holy Spirit? Um, I recall something about a banishment from a garden. Yes, we live in a fallen world and we're fallen men, but we do still have access to God through Christ. Praise God. Um, we have access to several thousand hand-copied manuscripts of portions of Holy Scripture, every one of which has some demonstrable errors in it. And so we have basically three approaches to sorting through the matter. Um, And again, he's assuming that we have a mass of corrupted manuscripts and we have to use human reasoning and human logic to reconstruct it. And the Received text a Reformation text position says, no, we're relying on the providential preservation of God. We're, we're relying on what God allowed to be received, acknowledged, printed, translated, uh, preached from, studied in the Protestant era, and we're receiving that as the standard. We don't have to attempt to reconstruct the text. We have a text when you when you when you already possess something you don't need to try to reconstruct it um at any rate uh he he talks about the three choices there are he says you got three choices choose the right family manuscripts some Texas Receptus majority text and Westcott and Hort though they choose different families um Choose the largest number of existent manuscripts, majority text. Choose the readings that account for the other readings, eclectic text. So, a couple of interesting things about this. Um, first of all, he, he he's wrong about describing the Texas Receptus position. In fact, he doesn't even allow it. I think properly to be described. I would say it's simply the text of the Protestant era, the the consensus text. Uh, read uh, Richard Muller's. Um, Theological Dictionary entry on Texas Receptus, the text that was the consensus text of the Reformation, post-Reformation era. Uh, um, that's, that's the text. It's not the majority text, um, and it's not the eclectic text. Um, you know, of course, he gives the most favorable description from his perspective of the eclectic. The eclectic text is the one that that explains all the others. Oh, does it? Is that why that we've had this for 150 years and the scholars in this field can't agree among themselves as to what the text is. Have they been given a foolproof method for accounting for all the other readings and telling us which one is correct when every one of their editions tinkers and changes the text to one degree or another? uh, This shows the failure, this shows how modern textual criticism has been a dead end uh it 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 is a cul-de-sac um in uh in study of God's word. Uh he continues, God's singular care and providence has preserved an enormous number of manuscripts. No, that's not what the preservation is about. That's not the way the Westminster divines thought of it, about it. They didn't say that <laughs> that singular care and providence meant that we'd just been given a huge heap of manuscripts so we could we could get the experts to sort through. No, they believed they had the word of God in their hands at that time. Um, and uh, they could use it uh, confidently to draw proof texts for the confession. They were not saying, maybe one day we'll be able to reconstruct the text. Maybe one day we'll have it. No, they believed they had it in their day. They were confident about it. Um, (laughs) uh, We have these huge numbers, not one of which is free from obvious human error. Respect for that providential preservation, providential care, Moves some of us to be willing and to entertain the full range of what is providentially available. Um, just because there is, there are these readings that are available in these massive manuscripts doesn't mean that they should be entertained as part of the word of God. One of the things about one of the, one of the um, uh, weaknesses, the soft underbelly of the modern textual criticism movement is that, that for the most part, they have absolutely no idea about the provenance of these manuscripts. For all we know, many of these manuscripts that are being tinkered with to change and supposedly improve the Reformation text were ones that came from heterodox uh, communities, from Gnostics Uh, from uh, those who were Ebionites who denied the deity of Christ, if if you're depending upon this empirical method and you don't have enough information even to identify where these manuscripts come from, um, then how are you going to do some kind of meaningful reconstruction of them? Uh, Let's continue. Uh, Mr. Stahl's statistical discussion of percentages was curious and not pertinent to the question do we count all the letters in the original manuscripts and calculate how many have variants? An individual with a speech impediment may have an erroneous articulation and error, question mark, in every word he speaks, yet speak with entire truth. When Dabney wrote the doctrinal various readings in the Greek text, he addressed only variants that might have a substantive consequence for what the scriptures principally teach, namely what man is to believe concerning God or what duty God requires of man. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 3, and also referred to as Faith and Life at Westminster Confession of Faith 1-2. So he's, uh, you know, I, I must say, I think in Bruce Stahl's article, I was a little critical of the fact that he relied mainly on the textual um, notes in the New King James Version. And I think his estimate was that one in 10 verses has an error in it. And I, I, again, I think, If you have the full range, access to the full range of the extant manuscript and versional information, you'll find out there are many, many more variants than that. In fact, again, Peter Gurry has suggested there are half a million uh, variants of some sort within the the mass of materials that we have, and there's absolutely no way that there can be an empirical process for sifting through all that material. No person can do this. No group of people, no algorithm can do this, and so that's why we shouldn't be relying on empirical methodology. We should be uh, relying on providential preservation. But at at any rate, I I agree. I I, I don't think it's it's a statistical matter of statistics. But what I find ironic about this is that Gordon is suggesting. An empirical method. He's essentially he's criticizing Stahl for talking about statistics, but but essentially he's advocating a humanistic um, means of reconstructing the text. And let's continue here. Uh, da, da, da. I don't recall a single uh, arithmetic statement in this in his discussion. And he concluded that none of the various readings affected Christian duty or belief. Suppose, for instance, that every sentence in the Hebrew or Greek Bible had a variant in the textual tradition somewhere. That's probably what Bart Ehrman believes. Would this mean that the Bible is 100% unreliable? No, it would merely mean that human copyists are unreliable. Attempting to quantify uh, the matter would be an enormously difficult task, the equivalent of counting every letter in the Bible, then comparing each letter on each occasion to every known variant, a fool's errand, if there ever was one. It is also an entirely unnecessary task if our goal is to find in the Bible what we are to believe and what we have to do, we already find more than we can handle. And the Westminster Assembly gave sage advice for reading said Bible. Quote, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Westminster Confession of Faith nine. Uh, Westminster. Uh, uh, let me pause here. This is a discussion in chapter one, paragraph nine, of the peripiscuity, the clarity of Scripture. So this is this is not talking about about text. Again, the the the, the framers of the confession assumed the received text, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, the the textus receptus of the Greek New Testament. They weren't talking about. Um, this wasn't talking about textual criticism. This was talking about the doctrine, the clarity, or the perpiscuity of Scripture. That if there is one part of the Scripture that is obscure to our understanding, we interpret it by places that are clearer to our understanding. Um, so I think it's this is a, a a misapplication, misunderstanding of the teaching in in Westminster Confession of Faith one He continues, uh, Westminster candidly indicated that some places of scripture spoke more clearly than others and had had earlier noted, and there's a quote here from 1-7, I'm not going to read that, I think I've made the point already, Westminster seemed quite content to discover what is necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, and that if the entire Bible were consulted in some place of scripture or other, people could attain to a sufficient understanding of the matter that they said nothing about the precise meaning of individual texts or the specific meaning of individual, individual texts. They were concerned with faith and life, with Scripture's basic doctrine of salvation. Well, friends, yes, they were, they were concerned with faith and life, but um, they were concerned with the proper handling of the word of God. And again, they, they, they did not believe that the word of God was uncertain. They believed they had the text, and they believe that the, in the interpretation of the scriptures, which are wholly sufficient, that one must uh, use a study, and one must uh, have prayer, and one must have the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and and there must be the clarity and the peripiscuity of scripture. This doesn't have anything to do with justifying the empirical uh, methods of modern textual criticism. Uh, He continues. Let's see how much longer we have to go. Uh, We're almost done. Well, let's go a little bit uh, further. I know I I, I took over two hours on his first article, so I'm trying to do this one a little more quickly. Uh, Neil Postman and Jacques Ellul were very weary about modernism's movement towards numerical calculation in every intellectual endeavor, Even without a thermometer, we can hardly tell whether our forehead or a child's forehead suggests a fever. Uh, We can ordinarily rather tell. And the treatment for a fever is the same for 100.5 or 101.2. For Alul and Postman, many or most of life's important realities would not be calculated numerically, but could be spoken of helpfully and meaningfully. Similarly, the Westminster Assembly was concerned with faith in life and with what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, with what is necessary for salvation. None of their concerns were about 10% of this or 12% of that. And I agree with you wholeheartedly, and it's interesting that he he cited Neil Postman. Um, uh, Actually, uh, I've got to pull down off my shelf my copy of Neil Postman's uh, little book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, subtitled Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business, and I, I remember this was a really important book for me when I read it. It really challenged a lot of my views about questioning uh, modernity. But um, I, I think he's 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 misapplying Postman's thoughts. Neil Postman's thoughts. I'm not sure about Jacques Aloul. Um, he's saying these guys were saying that that that, that we can't rely on numerical calculations in every intellectual endeavor. That's exactly what modern textual criticism is. Particularly, look at it now, using the, the coherence-based genealogical method. Neil Postman would have said we were better off when we had the received text. In fact, if you read his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he talks about how in the colonial period in America that many people, one of the old things they read was the King James Version of the Bible. He would have been very critical of this flooding the market with all of these niche Bibles. And my goodness, what would he, what would he say now about the internet and the digital age? Uh, he was one who liked the simplicity of a single translation and a traditional translation that used high and uh, literary, um, uh, literary uh, language to convey things to ordinary people. Uh, So, um, yeah, I was thinking about uh, uh, Dr. Gordon's book, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And I remember in that book, which is a good book on homiletics, he talks about the fact that one of the things that, that a young man could do to improve his preaching is to read poetry. And I would just suggest here on the fly that one of the reasons Johnny can't preach today is he's not read a classic Protestant translation of the Bible, and he's not benefited from taking in beautifully constructed prose uh, into his vocabulary, into, into his language. Um, he doesn't have that, 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 that biblene quality to his writing, to his thinking, uh, to his speaking. Um, and I don't think we're helping the modern church today by abandoning uh, our classic Protestant traditions, our, our, our classic Protestant text, and our classic Protestant translations. And in the English-speaking world, that means the Tyndale King James Version a translation tradition. Um, let's continue. Um, he said, it should be noted that Mr. Stahl's reasoning suggests that an inerrant manuscript text is necessary to one's faith and necessary to one's faith in the gospel and God's word. This suggestion is neither psychologically nor biblically true. Psychologically speaking, truth and accuracy are not identical concepts. I think this is interesting. Um, uh, he, he's taking um, stall on because he had stressed the need for an, in, an inerrancy. Um, And and again, I've got a kind of complicated view on this because I agree with Theodore Letus that Warfield and others of that era, sort of in in an attempt to answer modernity, came up with the whole idea of inerrancy, whereas the men of the Reformation, post Reformation era, didn't speak about inerrancy but infallibility. But uh, they believed that the, the Word of God they had was. Uh, equivalent to what was written in the autographs. They were not trying to reconstruct the autographer. They had the autographer in the copies. They had infallible scripture that was truth without any mixture of error. And although I don't like the Warfieldian redefinition of evangelical bibliology as centering around the reconstruction of the inerrant autograph, um, I would agree, I think, with Stahl that, Christians look to the infallible Word of God, truth without any mixture of of error, uh, to use the, the language I think of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, um, and and so I'm not sure uh, about this. His attack on don't don't Christians believe that God's Word is pure, that it is perfect, um, that it has been preserved by God. That's that's the that, that's the um um uh, I I think a default position of the Christian layman who sits in the pew that he holds the word of God to be not the word of man but but what it is in truth as Paul put it to the Thessalonians the Word of God uh let's continue I I, I don't really like this this illustration as I recall but let's go with it uh, uh Gordon continues, a wartime soldier might aim at an enemy's heart with his rifle and hit the lung instead with the same result. The enemy is no longer a combatant. The soldier truly shot the enemy, though inaccurately. Indeed, one purpose for aiming at the heart is that it is nestled between the lungs and the heart lung area, is referred to by some specialists in these matters as the critical target area. Similarly, a public speaker may find himself reasoning with a series of negatives. This is not to say that Paul was not concerned that the Corinthians may not give as generously as the Macedonians resulting in saints in Jerusalem not having enough food. In such situations, at some point, the speaker loses momentarily his Aristotelian logic and is not sure whether he has the right number of knots in his sentence, fearing that he may be off by one and inverting his intention. His hearers, however, understand his thought Uh, They also may have lost the train of knots themselves, but they understand the truth of what the speaker intended. But I I think this analogy breaks down because the point is not that the scriptures have errors and and yet they can still hit the target somehow. The point I think most Christians say is that scriptures are perfect. The word of God is pure, um, that it's like silver refined in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, even if the messengers are imperfect. I agree the messengers are imperfect, but not the word of God. The word of God is not imperfect. The messengers can stammer and can misspeak, but God's word is powerful because it's pure. And we don't have to make some, that's a liberal argument that the scriptures uh, aren't, uh, aren't really pure, that, they, that they, they just have to kind of do the best they, they can Uh, We believe in a divine origin of the scriptures. And because God is is true and perfect and doesn't lie, uh, neither do the scriptures, which are his God-breathed word. Um, Let's see, we've got three more paragraphs. Let's see if we can gut it out here. After the printing press, the more fluid nature of oral discourse or hand copied manuscript was replaced with fixed type. The expectations, of fluid fix, uh, uh, the expectations of fixed type different from those of oral discourse or manuscript. And yes, when the adulterous Bible was printed, regrettably omitting the not from thou shalt not commit adultery, the Bibles were withdrawn from the public and reprinted at no expense to those who had purchased the original mistaken version. You know, talking about the so-called wicked Bible, where there was a printing error, they didn't have the not, and so they said thou shalt commit adultery. The holy scriptures, both old and new, were generated in that segment of human history in which the sacred writings were neither oral nor printed. For roughly three and a half millennia, oral discourse could be reduced to writing, to the chagrin of Socrates, but not to fixed print, where each individual copies precisely like the other. It does not take a media ecologist to realize that in this substantial era of human history, human sensibilities shaped themselves to the media they knew, orality and manuscript, not to media they neither had nor anticipated, fixed type. In the brief period when the adulterous Bible was in print, some ministers lay readers must have read aloud the misprinted decalogue during the liturgy, provoking only laughter, not widespread sexual infidelity. Um, Let me go back on this. I think what he's trying to say here, and I hear this a lot, Uh, from people who are advocates for the modern critical text is basically the argument is that Christians didn't really care about specificity uh, in their Bibles until after the invention of the printing press. And um, I just think, again, that's inaccurate. I already talked about this previously. The ancient Jews certainly cared very deeply about careful transmission, careful copying of the word of God. I was thinking about even in the Bible itself, like in the old Testament, uh, when there was a difference between Shibboleth and Sibboleth or in the New Testament where, where Paul uh, stresses the important the importance of it, of it being the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham was to his seed, singular, and not to his seeds. Words matter. And uh, the, the Protestant Orthodox um, certainly did not have this loosey-goosey uh, view that Um, Well, it doesn't really matter what the words are, and nor did they have that view because of the invention of the printing press. They had that view because they cared about truth. They cared about what was truly the word of God. Think again about Tertullian, uh, when he was telling people, if you want to check your copy of Romans, go to Rome and look at the original there and make sure your copy is correct. That was hundreds of years before the invention of printing. Of course, people cared about accuracy. That didn't just appear overnight with the invention of printing, but the invention of printing was a great boon uh, for uh, culture and for civilization. And it was a technological innovation that was allowed in the providence of God, I think, to give at the time of the Reformation, uh, at the time of this unprecedented time of revival um, of the Christian faith, restoration of the Christian faith, a way for the scriptures to be accurately conveyed to the most number of people. Um, So the invention of the printing press is not a negative, uh, it's a positive and it doesn't represent some change in the way Christians thought about the authenticity and accuracy of the scriptures but it allowed them to uh, have, I think, a a stronger grasp of that using this technology um, that overcame some of the errors of mistakes that would come about through handwritten manuscripts. Um, Last two paragraphs, next to last. It is possible that there are individuals today, over half a a millennium after the printing press, whose sensibilities differ from those of humans who preceded them, and perhaps Mr. Stahl is one of them. But his sensibilities are neither universal nor in all likelihood even humanly possible prior to the printing press. And as to the inference that our faith depends on an inherently constructed printed product made from an inherently copied manuscript, it might suggest that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. see also Galatians 3, 2, and 5. Um, by the way, did, did Mr. Stahl say that the, that, that, that this, the scriptures were inerrantly copied, that the, that the scribes were inerrantly copying the manuscripts. That, that is a, another um, straw man argument. Uh, I think what he was saying, and certainly what we in the, the confessional text position view would say, is not that there were inerrant scribes, but there was an inerrant God, uh, a God of, of providence who was overseeing the transmission Uh, of his scriptures and preserving his scriptures. So we don't have to set up a a conflict between, um, again, the Christian uh, 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 transmission of the scriptures before the printing press and after the printing press. I've already sort of uh, gone into that, I think, in enough detail. Uh, Let's see. Uh, He says, which when Paul wrote these words and would have been a word of God fallibly Uh, fallibly proclaimed orally or fallibly read orally from fallible manuscripts. Fallible apostles preached to fallible hearers, and the gospel nonetheless flourished. Yes, again, there were fallible preachers. There were fallible hearers. But there's an infallible God, and he has breathed out his word. You know, the old men, men like Turretin, Owen, they talked about the divinity of the scriptures, because they took 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is theonustos, it's God-breathed. There, there is a divine quality. They talk about the divinity of the Scriptures. So, yes, we understand the faults of, of human scribes, of human preachers, of human hearers. But we, we, we don't say that God or God's Word is fallible or errant. Um, and again, I think this is just a big difference in bibliology. Let's get to this last paragraph. An assumption throughout Mr. Stahl's article is that we cannot function as faithful Christians unless we place our faith in an inerrant translation called from errant manuscripts. Um, I don't recall that Stahl was talking about translations other than the New King James Version. Um, I, 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 don't, I, I didn't see that in his, in his argument. And I think is this kind of a fair argument against it, much as people often accuse us of being King James Version onlyists uh, or believing in the inerrancy of the King James Version uh, versus uh, saying that God has immediately inspired his word in Hebrew and Greek and to the degree, as Owen would have put it, that translations faithfully reflect what was there in the immediately inspired originals then they convey to us, yes, the inspired word of God. So I'm not, a, I'm not a bashful to say a, that when I read my classic Protestant translation of the Bible, that I'm reading the inerrant word of God. Um, let's continue. He says, this is not so. God requires of no generation that, it, that do more than can, can be done in its own generation. Both Noah and David are described as having been faithful or obedient in their generation, suggesting that God only expects of us what can be expected in our specific moment in human history. But the characteristic trait God expects of us is faithfulness. His servants are routinely commended for being faithful. Lots of trips for passages, not accurate or precise. Well, part of being faithful to God's word is knowing what it is. If you don't know what God's word is, how can you be faithful to it? We're not claiming the, the perfection of believers But we're claiming the perfection of God's word, and that if we are Christians, then deep resonates with deep. Our spirits resonate with the Spirit of God in the scriptures. And if we don't know the scriptures, how can we be faithful? Uh, He continues, those who lived in those 1,500 years when one's only access to scripture was to hear audibly the lectionary readings for each Sunday of the church year could have been very faithful to what they heard each week. Those who, like Stephanus, and again he does it again. I think he means Erasmus. Freely translate the Latin of Revelation into Greek to the best of his ability were faithful. Again, that's a, that's an anecdote based on secondary sources, and I think there are a lot of questions about that story. And one of these days, I hopefully I'll write an article about it and do the research on it. Um, we who fallibly read the fallible translations based on fallible Greek manuscripts can still be by God's grace faithful, which is all that God expects of us. Yes, but the word of God is not fallible, right, brother? Scripture is not fallible. God is not fallible. And his word is pure. He has kept it pure in all ages. Yes, uh, there can be, uh, there can be, a fault in the uh, mechanisms of the transmission, but that's the thing about it. That's, God has perfectly providentially preserved his word. Um, he continues, I am reminded of President Washington's physicians who treated him by draining blood from his veins, a practice common in the late 18th century. Their so-called treatment hastened his demise. Their knowledge of medicine was imperfect, and a physician who did such today would lose at a minimum his license to practice. But the president's physicians did the best they could with the best knowledge available in their generation and treated him as they would have treated an uncle, father, or son. They were medically wrong, but ethically right. Approximate knowledge is the only knowledge humans have, and we judge for being faithful to what we know and for how diligently we went about pursuing it. It's another weird analogy, honestly. (laughs) Let me tell you this. I don't want any of these modern credentialed text critics bleeding the scriptures <laughs> and attempting to correct them and change them and rehabilitate them because what happens is they kill the patient. I think the the point of that analogy is don't have mere men attempt to, uh, to uh, attempt to uh, heal something, if their medical work ends up in the death of the patient. And this whole analogy breaks down because the Bible isn't a sick man. The Bible is the word of God. It's God breathed. Uh, Well, let's go to the last couple of sentences. Uh, We will hardly be found unfaithful by all knowing God if our translation reads color, O-R, rather than color, O-U-R, the British spelling. And the overwhelming majority of variants in the manuscript the Bible are merely such regional, regional? Interesting variations. Yes, there are slight spelling variants uh, in different manuscripts of the Bible, um, but we're not talking about minor variants. There are major, major variants, uh, and many of these major variants are being embraced by those who have embraced modern textual criticism, like the trying to remove the ending of Mark, trying to remove the woman taken in adultery, uh, I was preaching just this past Sunday this this uh, year 2024 I'm preaching through the Heidelberg Catechism as supplemented by the orthodox catechism of of the reformed Baptist pastor Hercules Collins um he wrote the orthodox catechism in 1680 and I was on Lord's Day 6 and it's the teaching on uh the the Christ the one person two natures of Christ that Christ is very man and very god And one of the central proof texts uh, for the message was 1 Timothy 3.16. God was manifest in the flesh. And as you know, you may know, uh, in the modern text, they changed the word God to the masculine pronoun. He, he was manifest in the flesh. Well, let me ask you something. Is there anything amazing about saying a man was manifest in the flesh? Of course not. There's nothing outstanding about that. Men are manifest in the flesh every day. Go down to the go down to the, the nursery at the local hospital and see the newborn babies, and you could say he was manifest in the flesh. Only if it reads God was manifest in the flesh, do we have uh, what is truly amazing and astounding. We have the gospel in that God was manifest in the flesh that Jesus Christ, the one person of Jesus Christ, is very man and very God. And you make a very slight change to 1 Timothy 3.16, and you have completely changed the doctrinal uh, uh, importance of that passage, the doctrinal focus, the doctrinal bite of that passage. And I I sent a tweet out about this uh, earlier this week because I was thinking, that, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism was composed um, in the 16th century, and it's been used since then by Christians as an instrument for discipleship and preaching and teaching. And then the late 19th, 20th century comes along and people change First Timothy 3.16 from God was manifest in the flesh to he was manifest in the flesh. And I bet there were many people who worked on projects like that who weren't even aware that they were engaging in undermining uh, a classic Protestant teaching of Christology in the Heidelberg Catechism and the proof that undergirds the teaching that was appealed to by the framers of that catechism. And so um, there may have been some people who were aware of it, who wanted to undermine orthodox uh theology and wanted to be free as albert schweitzer said i want he wanted to be free from dogma and you know find the historical jesus and so forth well friends uh we have completed this three part series uh, we've looked at the final article let me let, let me just close with just two two quick points first of all the good thing it's wonderful that the opc they're talking about the the importance of text. So I think it's great the ordained servant has been doing these articles. Second point, though, and I'll say this again, I said this last time, okay, we've got, we've had one article on the majority text, Bruce Stahl. We've had two articles now from T. David Gordon on the uh, eclectic text or the modern critical text. But what's the position that hasn't been represented? The received text, the Reformation text, the traditional text. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there were at least one article written by one scholar and get someone from the free church of Scotland, continuing uh, get someone from the free Presbyterian church uh, who upholds uh, the traditional text, um, get a, a, an OPC pastor who holds to the tr- confessional text. Um, if you want to go outside of, of Presbyterian life uh, you, you can find uh other people who who can be able to speak to that, whether they're Baptists or Anglicans uh, who who hold to the traditional text view. But wouldn't it be nice if there were were one article in the ordained servant that represented that position? Well, with this, I'm going to bring this episode to a conclusion. I hope this has been helpful and edifying to those who have been listening. I'll look forward to speaking to you in the next uh, episode of Word Magazine. Till then, Take care and may the Lord richly bless you.